The second of Jesus' five recorded sermons in Matthew's Gospel is presented in chapter 10. The first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, was addressed to genuine disciples of Jesus on living as kingdom citizens. There, Jesus set forth the character, conduct, commands, and choices for kingdom citizens. Jesus also used the Sermon on the Mount to demonstrate his messianic authority through his teaching. Following that sermon, his messianic authority is demonstrated by his actions in Matthew 8 and 9. Now, beginning in Matthew 10, Jesus delegates his authority to his disciples. Disciples are not only kingdom citizens, but kingdom servants. And as servants, disciples will carry on the mission and ministry of the king. Though this sermon was explicitly preached to the twelve, it is not unique to them. These twelve men were merely the first in a line of succession of teachers and disciples that has continued now for two thousand years. The Great Commission underscored that Jesus expected these twelve to reproduce other disciples. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, make disciples of all nations. Paul also emphasized the importance of teaching others who will teach others in his commission to Timothy. He writes in 2 Timothy 2.2, These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able also to teach others. Now then, this sermon in Matthew 10 is a sermon for kingdom servants. The Sermon for Kingdom Servants lays out principles for every generation of disciples. And by learning and applying these principles, kingdom citizens will be equipped as servants for kingdom service. We will also be equipped to train up the next generation of disciples. Now, the Sermon for Kingdom Servants begins here in Matthew 10, 1-4 by stating three facts about the servants of the kingdom. Three facts about the servants of the kingdom in Matthew 10, 1 to 4. So as we consider the servants of the kingdom, Matthew 10, 1 through 4, let's begin with verses 1a and 2a. And we'll see here the first fact about kingdom servants is that they are commissioned. Kingdom servants are commissioned. Again, Matthew 10, 1a and 2a. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. Now, notice there, the verb summoned, proskaleo, means to call someone to oneself authoritatively for a purpose. Now, this call or summons is not a call to salvation, but the commissioning to service. We could read it or render it this way. Jesus commissioned his twelve disciples... Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. Now notice that Jesus called or commissioned his twelve disciples. The term disciples, mathetes, or tamudim in the Hebrew, refers to those who commit themselves to a teacher to study and learn God's law. It should also be noted that Jesus did not have only twelve disciples. There were hundreds of men and women, young and old, who were disciples. However, out of the crowd of disciples, Jesus commissioned 12 for a specific service task. 
and the specific service to which these twelve were commissioned was apostleship. Again, in verse 2, Matthew records, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. In order to understand the meaning of the title apostle or apostolos, we must consider what it meant to the original Jewish readers, the Jewish believers. We have the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a valuable resource for the exegete to connect Greek terms to their Hebrew counterparts. In the Septuagint, the term apostle or apostolos is used to translate the Hebrew term shalah, meaning prophet or prophecy. Like the Greek term apostle, apostolos, the Hebrew term prophet, shalah, means one who is sent. It conveys the idea of a messenger, one who is sent with a special message. And it is this meaning that is used in Isaiah 6 and verse 8. Whom shall I send? There's the word shalah, or apostolo. And who will go for us? Here am I, send, shalah, apostolo, send me. So an apostle or prophet is a divinely commissioned representative who conveys a message. Now comparatively, those who presently today serve as missionaries are apostles in a general sense. That is, they are set apart by God They are commissioned by God to go out and declare the gospel far and wide. This same pattern is seen in the commissioning of Barnabas and Saul. Acts chapter 13 verse 2 to 3 states, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, proskaleo, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Later, Paul says in Acts 16.10, God has called us, proskaleo, to preach the gospel. In both passages, the term called, proskaleo, is the same as the term summoned in Matthew 10.1 and implies that God commissioned them to service. Again, this summoning or calling was in actuality a commissioning to the Lord's service. Now, all genuine believers are disciples, and all disciples will be commissioned to service. However, we need to be clear, not all disciples will be commissioned to be apostles or missionaries. According to Ephesians 4.11, Jesus Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Besides apostles or missionaries, God commissions some, perhaps some of you, to serve as prophets or itinerant preachers, some as evangelists, and others as pastor teachers. And along with these four areas of service, God commissions others, and maybe some of you, to serve as bishops of the church, or others of you as deacons or deaconesses in the church. Additionally, there are a host of other areas in the church where you as a disciple can serve your king. Now, I also want to note that while these 12 were the first to be commissioned, 
I want you to notice that a group of 70 more were commissioned into the king's service shortly afterward. Now Luke 9 records the commissioning of the 12 as seen here in Matthew 10. Luke 10.1 says, Now after this, that is, after the commissioning of the twelve, the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Eventually, folks, all genuine disciples are expected to serve the king. The scripture knows nothing of a disciple who is not serving King Jesus. And so disciple, believer, kingdom citizen, I need to ask you, are you serving the king? And if you're not serving the king, you need to examine why you're not serving. And you need to confess whatever sin is keeping you from serving and then recommit yourself to serve him. It should also be recognized that serving happens in connection with the local church. Now, some will serve in the local church itself. Others will be sent out from their church to serve in another church or a locale that needs a church. Nonetheless, the pattern set forth throughout the entire New Testament is that kingdom service occurs in relationship with your local church. So if you're not coming to church, if you're not attending church, how are you serving the Lord? It's a question you need to ask and answer before him. Now, the second fact about kingdom servants is that they are certified in Matthew 10, 1b. The second fact about kingdom servants is that they are certified, Matthew 10, 1b. Kingdom servants are certified. Jesus... Chapter 10, verse 1, part B. Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the commission included all the rights, all the power, all the authority of the one doing the commissioning. And note here that Jesus gave them authority. The term authority, exousia, denotes strength or power. Previously in Matthew 7, 28, it was noted that Jesus' teaching was with authority. That is, Jesus had the power or authority within himself to interpret the scripture. He did not need to quote others to support or establish his interpretation of the scripture. Now, Jesus gives his servants authority, exousia, or power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In essence, these 12 were sharing in his authority to do the same. In Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus proved his message by many signs and wonders. He healed various diseases and cast out demons. Jesus did these things to confirm that he and his message were from God. Indeed, as Nicodemus said to Jesus in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, my friends, the signs and wonders which Jesus authorized the 12 to display were a certification. That is, the miracle certified that God commissioned them to preach. And what was the message they preached? Look down at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 7. 
as you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Their message was the same message Jesus preached. In Matthew 4.17, it declares that from the time Jesus began to preach, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15 confirms that Jesus came from Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is confessing, forsaking, loathing sin and turning to God. Belief or faith in the gospel is trusting in a person and what he has done. That person is none other than God's son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, friend, if you have not, you must place your faith in the one who is the Son of God, the Savior, the Sovereign of humanity. And what has God, the Savior, and the Sovereign done? According to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he died for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day. Repentance and faith are confessing Jesus as Lord and submitting to his Lordship. Now, the importance of these signs and wonders to certify their gospel message is stressed by Paul in Hebrews chapter 2, 3, and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Here Paul gives, provides us three reasons why punishment for rejecting the gospel is so severe. Number one, the Lord himself spoke the gospel. Number two, the gospel was confirmed or validated by the apostles' testimony. And number three, the gospel was certified by signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts. The ability to perform these signs and wonders was God-given and certified these men to speak on God's behalf. Now then, it is essential to understand. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says the Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Now why do the Jews seek signs? Is Paul's statement meant to be a negative statement regarding the Jews? Not so. The Jews were looking for signs because God commanded them to test any prophet who came with a word from the Lord. Deuteronomy 13, 13 states, If a prophet or dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Hence, if a sign or wonder accompanied a prophet's message and his message conforms to God's law, then the prophet was indeed from God. Now, it's important to note that the sign or wonder alone was not sufficient. Even false prophets can appear to perform signs and wonders. Therefore, it's incumbent to test the message to see if it conforms to God's law. Now, while kingdom servants are not certified with signs and wonders today, your obedience to God's law provides certification of your servanthood. So, kingdom servants are commissioned, kingdom servants are certified, and kingdom servants are confirmed. Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, the third fact about kingdom servants is that they are confirmed. 
Now the name of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, Matthew confirms the identity of those commissioned and certified to serve as apostles. Now, besides the list here in Matthew 10, 2 to 4, three other lists exist in Scripture confirming the apostleship of these men. Mark 3, 16 to 19, Luke 6, 12 to 19, and Acts 1, 13. In each list, the apostles are divided into three groups of four. Group 1, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Group 2, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Group 3, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who's later replaced with Matthias. Now, those in group 1 are those whom Jesus called first. Group 2, those called next. And group 3, those called last. Though all 12 were closer to Jesus than the other hundreds of disciples, it is group one who enjoyed more intimacy with Jesus than groups two and three. And while many might consider merely reading this list of names and moving on, their inclusion in Scripture under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit should cause us to pause and consider their identity. In studying each of these men, modern disciples, you and I, might see ourselves in them and learn some life lessons. The first apostle we begin with is Simon, who is called Peter. Now Simon Peter was the son of Jonas, or John, a fisherman by trade from Bethsaida and later Capernaum. In every list of the twelve apostles, Peter is listed as first. He is first not because he was called first, which he wasn't, but because he was first protos or foremost in rank. And while all 12 were equal in their commission and their certification, Peter was the central leader of the 12. Now the name Simon was given by his parents, whereas Peter was the name given to him by Jesus. Peter's name means stone and conveys the type of man he will become after being trained and transformed by Jesus. Whereas Simon was ambivalent and unstable, Peter would be a man of resolution and stability. Interestingly, each time Jesus rebuked and reprimanded Peter, he referred to him by his old name, Simon. In doing so, Jesus reminded Peter that he was acting like his old self. And as an aside, Peter was reprimanded by Jesus more than any other disciple. Now, as we examine the gospel narratives, Peter is presented as presumptuous, unrestrained, self-centered, and cynical. Does that describe you? Peter was so presumptuous that on one occasion he rebuked Jesus. Lacking restraint, Peter was always quick to give his opinion on a matter and often talking over others. He was self-centered, caring only for his own needs and comforts. In his self-centeredness, he openly denies Jesus in order to protect himself. Peter was also cynical. He continually questioned what Jesus did, when he did it, why, where he did it, and why he did it. And the majority of those questions reflected his own spiritual immaturity. Through the teaching of Jesus, this presumptuous, unrestrained, self-centered, and cynical disciple was transformed. The Peter in the book of Acts and the author of two epistles is not the same man described in the gospel narrative. Peter led the fledgling church to seek God's will in choosing Jesus' replacement. 
He was the spokesman of the church on the day of Pentecost. He was the first apostle to defend the gospel before the Sanhedrin. Peter disciplined Ananias and Sapphira for their deceit. He rebuked Simon the sorcerer for attempting to purchase the Holy Spirit. Peter was the first apostle to take the gospel of the Gentiles, and later he ministered to the churches in Asia, Pontius, Bithynia, Galatia, and Cappadocia. His training and transformation by Jesus can best be summed up in his own words in 2 Peter 3.18. Beloved, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you a Peter? The second apostle was Andrew, Peter's brother. Now, Andrew lived with his brother Peter and was also a fisherman by trade. Andrew's presented in the Gospels as a godly individual. Along with John, he was a disciple of John the Baptizer. And it was Andrew who brought Simon Peter to Jesus. Throughout the Gospel records, Andrew is recorded as having brought many to the Lord, including Gentiles. From this, it can be underscored that unlike other disciples, Andrew was not prejudiced against non-Jews. Though he was the one who met Jesus first and brought Peter to Jesus, he soon took a back seat to Peter. Although he ministered in Peter's shadow, he willingly served the Lord, laboring humbly and quietly. He was content to support the ministry behind the scenes and serve in obscurity. And my friends, Andrew is the example of what servants ought to be. We ought to be godly. We ought to be eager to bring others to Jesus without prejudice. We ought to be humble and quiet. Does that describe you as a servant of God? Are you an Andrew? The third and fourth apostles are James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, James is usually paired with his brother, John. James is older, as he is mentioned first. Zebedee's wife, Salome, was the sister of Mary of Nazareth. Thus, James and John were Jesus' cousins. And like Peter and Andrew, James and John were fishermen. Now, Jesus referred to James and John as the sons of thunder. And let's be clear, this nickname was not meant to paint the brothers in a positive light. Instead, it shows them as impulsively zealous, insensitive, and vengeful, as well as they were loveless, sectarian, and selfishly ambitious. Does that describe you? Are you impulsively zealous, insensitive, and vengeful? Are you loveless, sectarian, and selfishly ambitious? Listen, when a Samaritan refused Jesus a place to sleep, these brothers wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume the city. On another occasion, the brothers tried to stop another disciple from doing Jesus' work because he wasn't one of the twelve. And later, James and John used their mother to petition Jesus for special status in the kingdom. Here, the brothers' selfish, unbridled ambitions were on full display. Now, friends, as servants, we ought to be zealous in the service to King Jesus. However, I warn you that zeal without wisdom is insensitive and vengeful. As well, zeal without love is destructive. And I can't count the number of ministries that have been destroyed by a lack of sensitivity and love towards others. Now, believer, you can be passionate and you can be enthusiastic about the Lord's ministry. But if you are intolerant and impatient, you are of no use to his ministry. And if that's you, you need to repent and get that right. Paul enumerates the lack of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. He says, I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I do not have love, I am nothing more than a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. 
I can have the gift of prophecy and I can know all mysteries and all knowledge and I can have all faith so as to remove mountains. But if I do not have love, I am nothing. I can give all my possessions to feed the poor and I can surrender my body to be burned. But if I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Furthermore, kingdom servants, we must guard against sectarianism. While biblically we are not to fellowship with those who teach false doctrine, and we are not to fellowship with those who persist in immorality, we must guard ourselves against separating from other believers over issues of culture, ethnicity, or any other superficial issue. Too often, servants of God, you look down on other servants of God because they're not part of your group. My friends, any servant of the Lord who is faithfully doing the Lord's work should be encouraged, not admonished. I also like to say that kingdom servants should also be ambitious. We should be ready to pursue the cause of Jesus. But I issue you a warning on this. Your ambitions must be bridled. Selfish ambition is loveless. It cares nothing for anyone, and it will use everyone to get what it wants. Such individuals seek their desires, caring nothing for who they push out of the way as long as they get their way. As with insensitivity, many, many ministries have been destroyed by selfish ambition. Well, despite their insensitivity and selfish ambition, John and James were transformed by the teaching of Jesus. Their zeal and ambition were bridled and tempered. James zealously served the Lord, willingly sacrificing his life for the gospel to the point of death by the sword. Though he lacked love during his years of training under Jesus, John became known as the Apostle of Love. Eighty times in his five New Testament writings, John mentions love. He loved God with his entire being, and he loved others without compromising his biblical convictions. Are you a James and John? Are you zealous? Are you ambition? Great, but make sure that you temper that zeal. You temper that ambition. And make sure that it is driven by the word of God and love for God and not love for self. The fifth apostle was Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida and was likely a fisherman with Peter and Andrew. He is presented in the gospel narrative as a devout man who diligently studied the Hebrew scriptures. He was the first person to whom Jesus said, follow me. And he was by all accounts practical and analytical. However, his reliance on the practical and analytical led him to only consider human solutions. When Jesus ordered the disciples to feed the 5,000, Philip was befuddled about how they would accomplish the task with the meager fish and bread on hand. Despite seeing Jesus perform many miracles, Philip was stumped as to how Jesus would feed so many. Additionally, Philip was indecisive. When approached by a group of Gentiles who wanted to see Jesus, instead of taking them to Jesus, Philip took them to Andrew, who in turn took them to Jesus. Unsure whether to introduce these Gentiles to Jesus, he passed the responsibility on to another. In actuality, there should have been no indecision. He, was all, he had already seen Jesus interact, heal, and bless various individuals of Gentile descent. And so, my friends, I say this, I warn you, being practical and analytical can serve you well. But as kingdom servants, you must beware of relying solely upon such naturalistic mindsets. You serve the God of miracles. 
And a miracle, by definition, is anything that occurs in the natural realm that defies the laws of the natural order. As such, kingdom servant, I challenge you to view your circumstances, not merely through the natural lens, but through spiritual ones. Furthermore, there is to be no room, there is no place for indecisiveness, there is no place for bumbling, there is no place for wavering in God's service. When God provides a clear precept, principle, or position, we as kingdom servants must stand firm and act. Is that you? Are you a Philip? Are you a Philip in the sense that you're indecisive? Are you a Philip in the sense that you're so analytical and practical that you can't see God's work? If that's you, you need to repent. The sixth apostle is Bartholomew Nathaniel. Bartholomew Nathaniel came from Cana of Galilee and was a close friend of Philip, who in turn brought him to Jesus. And like Philip, Bartholomew was a diligent student of the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly the Messianic prophecies. Nonetheless, he struggled with prejudice. When Philip told Bartholomew that he had found the Messiah and that the Messiah was from Nazareth, Bartholomew scoffed, stating that nothing good comes from Nazareth. Despite his prejudice, Jesus stated that Bartholomew was a person without deceit or hypocrisy. And so, kingdom servants, we must be devout and diligent in studying God's word. Moreover, we must be truthful and sincere, free from prejudice and pretense. And so I ask, are you a a Philip or are you a Bartholomew? Are you devout and diligent in studying God's word? Are you truthful and sincere? Have you put away pretense and prejudice? The seventh apostle is Thomas Didymus. Now, here's a guy that's been saddled with the moniker of Doubting Thomas. And despite that moniker, he was actually a man of great courage. When the report came of Lazarus' death, Jesus determined to go to Bethany. Many of the disciples urged Jesus, don't go, it might result in your death. Thomas, however, rebuked the others and courageously encouraged them all to go with Jesus. Besides his courage, however, Thomas was also a pessimist. He saw the worst-case scenario. Hence, when he encourages the others to go with Jesus, he adds that they'll likely die with Jesus. His pessimistic attitude also caused him to question the other disciples about Jesus' resurrection. You see, the fact is, my friends, that anyone naturally pessimistic and struggling with sorrow and depression over losing a loved one will not easily be moved to believe without seeing sufficient evidence. But upon seeing the resurrected Jesus, Thomas declared him his Lord and God. Literally, he pronounced Jesus to be his Yahweh, Elohim. Now, friends, kingdom servants, we all struggle with the weakness of human flesh. Some of you, like Thomas, struggle with pessimism. But I would warn you that pessimism can hinder a ministry. It will keep you from ever going forward and trying new things. And as well, I would challenge you, kingdom servant, to be courageous. Listen, the king's service is not for the faint of heart. He has promised us that as servants we will suffer persecution for his sake. And so it's going to require a great deal of courage to stand firm during difficult days. What kind of servant are you? Are you like Thomas? The eighth apostle is Matthew the tax collector. Now Matthew is best known for being a tax collector, an occupation that brought a significant stigma. The Jews viewed the tax collectors as traitors to Israel and loyalists to Rome. They were also hated because they often extorted those they taxed, extracting extra money 
than what was required to pay the tax. Matthew's other name, Levi, implies that he was of Levitical heritage. His Levitical heritage would have provided him a degree of priestly training, which explains his depth of knowledge about the law and prophets as demonstrated here in his gospel narrative. While little is known about Matthew besides his occupation, one obvious thing is his love for the lost. After his conversion, the first thing Matthew does is hold a dinner at his house for his former associates, his co-workers, and other sinners to come and meet Jesus. And so, kingdom citizens, we must have a heart for the lost. Are you a Matthew? Do you have a heart for the lost? If not, why not? The ninth apostle is James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, interestingly, Matthew is also referred to as the son of Alphaeus. As such, Matthew and James were brothers. Now, Hegesippus, A.D. 110 to 180, a Christian, an opponent of Marcion and the Gnostics, asserts that Alphaeus, also known as Clopas, was the brother of Joseph, Mary's husband, and Jesus' uncle. His wife was the other Mary who was present at the death and burial of Jesus. And so that would make that James and Matthew, as brothers, would have also been the cousins of Jesus. Now, this James is known as James the Less. Now, some believe this moniker was used to distinguish him from James, the brother of John. And while that is certainly possible, the term Less, Micros, could refer to the fact that he was the youngest of the apostles. The tenth apostle is Thaddeus. He was also known as Judas, the son of James. Judas was likely his birth name, while Thaddeus was a nickname. In fact, the nickname Thaddeus means breast child and was a term of endearment for the family's youngest child. The eleventh apostle is Simon the Zealot. Now, Zealot, Kananias, should not, I'll say it again, not be translated as Canaanite, as some translations mistakenly render it. The term kanonios is the Aramaic equivalent of zelotes, which is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew term gana, meaning jealous or zealous. See, the title kanonios, or zealot, describes those who identified themselves with the Jewish nationalistic party seeking independence from Rome. And though they were a political party, they resorted to terrorism and assassinations. That Simon was a member of this political group informs us that he was likely a man of violent passion before meeting Jesus. Now, besides their mention in the apostolic list, not much is said of these three apostles in the scripture. James, Thaddeus, and Simon served their king in obscurity. And you see, my friends, that tells us that the king's service is not always glamorous. It's not always distinguished. If you're going to be a kingdom servant, be prepared to serve in obscurity. Is that the type of disciple you are? Or are you someone that has to be seen by everybody? The twelfth apostle is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, Iscariot means man of Kiriath. Kiriath was a Judean town 23 miles south of Jerusalem. And so of the twelve, Judas Iscariot is the only Judean amongst them. The other eleven were all Galilean. As well, 40 verses in the New Testament refer to Judas' betrayal of Jesus the Messiah. He was the disciples' treasurer but was also noted for being greedy and stealing from their treasury. And despite identifying himself as a disciple of Jesus and servant of the king, he was disingenuous. He was motivated by selfishness, materialism, and greed, which in turn culminated in his betrayal of Jesus. I pray that you're not a Judas, that you're not motivated by materialism, greed, and selfishness. You see, Judas serves as a cautionary tale. 
Any one of you listening can claim to be a disciple and a kingdom servant. But I say to you, talk is cheap. It's easy to identify as a kingdom servant, but it's another to live as a kingdom servant. All twelve identified as kingdom servants, and all twelve struggled with sin. However, while all sat under Jesus' teaching, only eleven were transformed or regenerated. How many of you have wondered how someone who sits under the teaching of Scripture and professes to follow Jesus can go off into sin and depravity? The answer is simple. Jesus' teaching never transformed them. They've never been regenerated. They have head knowledge about Jesus and the gospel, but they have never genuinely repented. They never loathed and forsaken their sin, nor turned to God. My friends, kingdom servants do not cover up their sin. They confess it. These twelve were commissioned, certified, and confirmed for service. Judas Iscariot demonstrates the truth in Matthew 7.22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the fact is you can preach, and you can perform miracles, and still not be a genuine kingdom servant. Now, does the fact that someone can fake their commission, certification, and confirmation for service imply that we as the church should stop commissioning, certifying, and confirming kingdom servants? No, it does not. John 6.64 declares, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And despite that, Jesus did not stop doing the work of commissioning, certifying, and confirming kingdom citizens to be kingdom servants. And therefore, we as the church should not stop either. Do not throw out a basket of good apples because of the bad apple. Instead, identify that bad apple and remove it so it doesn't cause other good apples to become bad. Now, as to the method of moving someone from kingdom citizen to kingdom servant, as the church, we ought to follow the example of Jesus. First, there must be a conversion. Church leaders, you must examine and ensure that the individual is part of God's kingdom. Second, there must be a selection process. In the case of the twelve, Jesus fasted and prayed before he selected those who would serve as the twelve. And the pattern of scripture of selecting individuals to serve is always preceded by prayer and fasting. Maybe that's why the church today has been plagued by poor leadership, because those choosing the next leaders have not prayed and fasted. Third, There is the training of those individuals. Now, training involves learning both by instruction and example. Here's Jesus, the master rabbi, setting forth the same pattern with his disciples. Training also involves engaging disciples with opportunities to serve under the watchful eye of the mentor. And then finally, there's the commissioning, certifying, and confirming of the kingdom citizen as a kingdom servant. Finally, friends, we need to understand and and, and reconcile this. Kingdom servants are not going to be perfect. Listen, if you're a leader, if you're a leader of the church and you're looking for perfection, then you need to resign because you are far from perfect. Indeed, that does not mean that we ignore sin. Sin needs to be confronted when it's present. But we need to see here that Jesus did not commission these disciples because of some aspect of worthiness, ability, or faithfulness. In fact, what we see is they were unworthy, they were unable, and they were unfaithful. 
The scripture does not attempt to cover up their sins or shortcomings. They were proud, petty, prejudiced, and and power-loving. And yet, despite all their problems, Jesus patiently taught, corrected, exhorted, admonished them, and set an example. And for the eleven, they became worthy, they became able, they became faithful, because the teaching of Jesus transformed them. And his teaching continues to do the same today. I challenge each and every one of you as disciples, place yourselves under the teaching of Jesus so you can be transformed into servants of the kingdom. Let's pray. God, our Father, you are the Holy One, the Pure One, and the Sinless One. And we come into your presence through the Lamb that was slain. His blood has opened the door to your presence, and we enter into your presence with humility and with contriteness of heart. As the citizens of your kingdom, we submit ourselves to you and offer ourselves as your servants. Forgive us for those sins that so easily beset us. Forgive us of pride and pettiness, prejudice and power grabbing, and whatever else may plague us. Help us to follow the example of Jesus, your Son, who came not to be served but to serve. Guide us into the path of righteousness. Guide us into the path of service. And may all glory and power be yours forever and ever. And to that we say, Amen.